Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood, and today we're going to talk about Russia's latest troop buildup on Ukraine's border. Does Russian President Vladimir Putin plan an invasion? NATO is alarmed about Russia's military buildup on Ukraine's borders, and foreign ministers from the alliance are meeting today in Latvia to discuss a response. About a month ago, the U.S. reported that Russian troops were gathering in large number in several cities near the Russian border with Belarus and Ukraine. Russia says it is entitled to station its troops on its territory, and they pose no threat. But NATO and Ukraine say Moscow may be preparing to launch an attack. Since the 2014-2015 war in Ukraine, Moscow-backed separatists who control parts of Ukraine's eastern Donbass region, breakaway areas that separatists call the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, the DPR and LPR. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky came to power in 2019, promising to make peace in the Donbass. Shortly afterwards, he and Putin joined so-called Normandy format meetings. Those involve Ukraine, Russia, France and Germany. And they agreed to a ceasefire along the front lines between separatist and government-held areas. That ceasefire gradually fell apart. Last spring, Russia deployed tens of thousands of troops to the Russian side of the border. It subsequently withdrew some of those forces, but over the past few weeks, it sent similar numbers back. Just a few days ago, Ukrainian military officials warned of a potential large-scale Russian invasion. We have complete control over our borders, and we are fully prepared for any escalation. We can't ignore these threats to the security of Russia. We will react to them as appropriate, adequately to the situation. We are prepared to impose severe costs for further Russian aggression in Ukraine. NATO is prepared to reinforce its defenses on the eastern flank. So that was first Zelensky saying that Ukraine was ready for any invasion, then Putin warning somewhat ominously about Russia being ready to respond to threats, and last U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken speaking at a recent NATO meeting. 
Putin says that Ukraine has not done its part to implement the Minsk agreements that ended the 2014 war. He says he wants legal guarantees that NATO will not expand further eastward. In reality, there's little chance of Ukraine joining NATO anytime soon, but Moscow now portrays any form of military partnership between Ukraine and Western countries as a threat. So, is an invasion on the cards? Or is Moscow just sabre-rattling to win concessions in Kiev or the West? Or will Putin decide based on how people respond? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back Olya Olika, Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director. She runs all of our Europe work. And also joining us is Oleg Ignatov, a Russia expert who's calling in from Moscow. Olya, Oleg, welcome on. Glad to be back. Mm, glad to be here. So, Oleg, perhaps you could start by just describing a little bit. What, what are these Russian deployments close to the Ukrainian border? What do they actually entail and, and how do they compare to the build-up uh, last spring? What is happening in October, November and uh, what was happening April, May have the similarities but also have the differences. And these differences uh, look suspicious and worrying. Uh, in numbers, we have approximately the same number of Russian troops on the border with, with Ukraine, approximately 100,000. There are reports that there are slightly fever troops now, but uh, this difference is small. And both then and now, uh, the Russian explanations look as if Moscow is interested in keeping its uh, true intentions uncertain. In the spring, uh, Russia said that it was conducting exercises, uh, then that it was a response to NATO activity in the region, uh, then that Ukraine uh, was preparing to attack pro-Russian separatists in Donbass. And in spring, Russia was indeed doing exercises all over the country. In May, after the exercises, uh, Shoigu, who is uh, the Russian uh, defense minister, announced that the troops uh, were returning to uh, the permanent locations. This partly happened, but did not affect all troops because the Russian army was prepared for new exercises in summer and autumn. This autumn, uh, Russia's behavior is somewhat different. It behaves as if it did not want to draw attention to the movement of troops to its western border. And when asked, uh, Russia drew attention to NATO activity in, in the Black Sea and to the presence of NATO troops in Ukraine. Uh, Russia also said that it could move troops uh, in any direction on its territory and did not have to explain what it was doing. But at the same time, Russia again accuses Ukraine of trying to draw Russia into a military conflict. And uh, finally, just yesterday, the Russian foreign minister said that Ukraine has deployed half of its army uh, to Donbass. So, in general, Russia does not deny build-up, but it also does not acknowledge it. And it says that if war does break out, it's Ukraine's fault. Western military experts note that uh, the relocation of military units from other military districts to uh, the western and southern districts, uh, which have border with Ukraine, and where Russia already has many troops, is unusual. And in addition, Russian military experts uh, pointed out that uh, the Russian defense ministry is forming uh, something like combat army reserve, 
of about uh, 100,000 uh, servicemen. And all of these actions amid Russia's harsh rhetoric and stalemate in the talks on Donbass look suspicious and raise a lot of questions. And Oleg, so the difference in the build-up now as opposed to spring is related to sort of the hardware of what's been moved to the borders or it's more related to the way that Russian officials are signaling and some of the language that they're using about what Ukrainians are doing? It's more related to the way how Russia is doing that because Russia wanted to hide this activity at first and then Russia is not hiding. It's not hiding, but it's not uh, Russia. It's not going to acknowledge it. Some Western experts say that some deployment looks suspicious. They say that uh, there are some military trainings that look like preparations for occupation. And uh, they say that so many troops are being redeployed from the eastern parts of the country to the western parts of the country and to the southern parts of the country, where Russia has already uh, many troops. So we'll come back in a moment to sort of what Putin's motives might be and what are the risks of a of a Russian invasion? But could we go back a little bit? What has been the build up to this in Ukraine itself, and particularly sort of on the there's been this breakdown of the ceasefire on the front lines in eastern Ukraine and the Donbas uh, between areas that are held by Ukrainian forces and those that are held by Russian backed separatists. The talks, the so called Normandy format talks, Russia, Ukraine, France, and Germany, long been deadlocked, and there's been this sort of escalating violence. I mean, how much has that been? playing into what's happening? In 2021, uh, Russian officials in general began to use harsher language toward Ukraine. And we could explain this by the current stalemate in uh, negotiations on Donbass. And uh, I would remind that in 2019, when uh, President Zelensky was elected as the president of Ukraine, there were some hopes, uh, including in Russia, that uh, the peace process in Donbass will go forward. Because Zelensky promised peace and he campaigned on that. He said that he's going to negotiate with Russia on Donbass, but these hopes failed. And uh, in 2019, there was a meeting in the Normandy format. During this meeting, Ukraine acknowledged that the Minsk agreements uh, will be the basis of any settlement in Donbass, but in 2020, this process had stalled again. So Russia hoped that Zelensky was thinking about a compromise with Russia. But uh, Zelensky refused to do this because he understands that the Minsk agreements are not in favor of Ukraine. He understands that he can't implement the Minsk agreements as Russia wants uh, them to be implemented. In 2020, the new ceasefire was negotiated in Donbass. It was implemented in July, but it hasn't worked because Russia conditioned this uh, ceasefire with uh, direct talks between Ukraine and separatists, uh, which uh, Ukraine refused to do. And in 2021, uh, we see how uh, Russian rhetoric and Russian narrative on Ukraine is getting more and more aggressive. So Putin published his famous article on Ukraine. He used his old idea that Russians and Ukrainians are the same people, are the same nation. 
And uh, he also reminded that uh, the Ukrainian sovereignty is in Russian hands, that the Ukrainian sovereignty depends on Russia's goodwill. And in autumn, we saw that Russia began to talk more about NATO activity. And at the Valdai Forum, Putin said that Russia's red line on Ukraine is not only Ukraine's membership in NATO, but the very fact of uh, presence of NATO infrastructure in Ukraine. One of the things I find kind of valuable to bring out of all of this, um, of this kind of this narrative of what what all has happened, is that the conventional wisdom up until this spring was that Russia was happy with the status quo, that the point of the Minsk agreements was that it was a poison pill that they never be implemented, and the idea was that you just keep a steady state of unrest in Ukraine. And that Russia was happy with that. Ukraine arguably was also happy with that, or at least happier with it than the available alternatives. But the idea was that Russia was happy with the status quo. What we saw with the buildup this spring, and what is really coming back and very clearly now, both with the buildup and with the statements we've been hearing from Moscow, is that Russia is not happy with the status quo. That Russia did want Minsk implemented as written. That Russia does want to use this as a tool to renegotiate the security order in Europe the current state of which it feels is what led to all of this. And I think that's an important takeaway from my perspective, that Russia really does want to force a change here, and that is why it is taking these steps and making these comments now. Let's look at those pieces one by one. So the first one is the Minsk agreement. And I mean, there's this, in essence, there's a disagreement about sequencing, which we should talk about. But but part of it also seems that Moscow's views about what might be feasible in Ukraine just seem out of step with the reality of Ukrainian politics. That Zelensky came in and was about as accommodating as you could have expected an elected official in Ukraine to be. Uh, you know, he's had to sort of backtrack in large part because of uh, Ukrainian resistance, that he doesn't have a lot of space politically to, to, to compromise. Russia hasn't moved at all. And the idea that Kiev is going to compromise much. It seems very unlikely to happen. So how does Moscow think that it's going to be able to change that equation? So I think the Russians really do underestimate the extent both of Ukrainian opposition and I think uh, and of Ukrainian capacity, uh, which is interesting. It's been the case historically for a long time, right? And I think part of it is that your average Russian mostly speaks to friendly Ukrainians. Because of that, they assume that most Ukrainians are friendly, right? It's a very normal, logical fallacy. This has gotten worse over the years of the war because Russians speak to very few Ukrainians, period, right? Russian adult men aren't, you know, under the age of, I think, 65, aren't able to travel to Ukraine unless they are dissidents seeking asylum. So you've had this narrowing of the conversation where the Russians um, don't speak to Ukrainians, Ukrainians don't really speak to Russians. So the narratives on both sides evolve in directions that aren't really informed by what's going on on the other side. I think that is part of it. But I think there also is just a historical tendency. And you can see this if you read what Putin writes about Ukraine, just to have a really difficult time with the concept of Ukraine as a separate sovereign nation. And so the implementation of the Minsk agreements then from so from Russia's perspective, well, is it, the literal reading of the accords. 
The Ukrainians pass laws that provide separatist held areas in Donbass with what's called special status, so quite a high degree of self-rule. That happens, there's local elections, and only then do Ukrainians regain control of the borders in the breakaway regions. That's the sequence in Minsk. Kiev sort of understandably chafes at that. Uh, you know, they say, uh, Ukrainian leaders say, you know, we signed the agreements under military pressure. You know, they, they, they don't serve our interests. We want to we don't want to hold, we don't want to hold, they don't serve our interests and we don't want to hold elections in the separatist held areas until we gain control of those areas. Right, but they signed it, right? The Russians' position is, but you signed it. Yes, it's a victor's peace, but you signed it. Um, I think the other, the element where the Ukrainians have a stronger legal case would be on what special status means, because it's not that clearly defined in Minsk. The Russians really do see it not as self-rule and federalism, but as a veto over foreign policy. Um, somebody the other day referred to it as um, more like confederation than federalism, right? And that, I think, is something that is not well understood. People say, oh, special status, self-rule, well, that seems reasonable. Ukraine's a big country. Federalism would make sense for it. But the Russians are increasingly um, open about what they're insisting on, which is not that. It is the idea that you've got at least two chunks of the country that can stop the country from making decisions that they don't like. Uh, I would like to add there are also two problems here. So the first problem is uh, the very fact of ex existence of so-called People's Republic. And the second, the second problem is a uh, heavy weapon. Uh, so, uh, so about the first, as far as the first problem is concerned, uh, according to the Minsk agreements, yes, uh, uh, these territories which are under control of the DNR and LNR uh, should have some kind of autonomy in, in Ukraine. Yes, but uh, according to Ukraine and according to France and Germany, these rep republics should be dissolved. Uh, before uh, uh, local elections, according to Ukrainian law. But Ru Russia is not going to dissolve these republics. Russia even doesn't want to talk about that. And Russia wants that these republics uh, uh, sh should be legalized under Ukrainian constitution. And that is one of the main fears of Ukrainians. And that's why Ukraine uh, considers the main agreements as a Trojan horse. And the second problem, as I said, uh, have a weapons, have a weapons which have separatists. According to the Minsk agreements, all the foreign troops should be withdraw from Donbass. Ukraine wants guarantees that Russia will withdraw all have a weapons from Ukrainian territory, and uh, that Russia will guarantee that all separatist militia, all separatists, all combatants. Uh, will be disarmed in Donbass. But Russia, of course, doesn't want to discuss all of these problems. And uh, it looks like uh, uh, as if Russia wants to main to keep everything in Donbass as it is. Have weapons uh, which uh, were, are legalized under Ukrainian jurisdictions. According to the Minsk agreements, these future entities should have their own militia. And republics... Uh, interpret uh, this statement as if uh, uh, they uh, should have, uh, they should keep uh, their own uh, military forces, which they have now. 
These are two big problems in the Minsk agreements, and Ukraine wants guarantees uh, that these uh, problems are solved. So the um, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, I think the expression she used about Minsk was that both sides should display some sort of elasticity, that there was some sort of flexibility in Minsk. But Olya, Oleg, I mean, based on what you're saying, even with some degree of flexibility from both sides, which there isn't at the moment, but even with that, if what Russia wants is, in essence, as you say, Olya, a veto in Ukrainian politics, to be able to, through parts of the country, obstruct key foreign policy, security policy decisions, it's going to be very difficult, however elastic Minsk is, for Russia and Ukraine to agree on that, right? Sure. I, I mean, I would also throw in the possibility that even under the Minsk rules, I'm not sure Russia would get what it wants. Because if you, you know, fine, they stay as entities, they don't get reintegrated into Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts as Ukraine would want them to be uh, prior to their special status. Uh Perhaps even they maintain, at least for a while, this leadership that Russia has supported and has helped put in place. But if they're part of Ukraine, if there's free and normal movement between these uh, these territories and the rest of Ukraine, uh, if these people start dealing with Ukrainians and being part of the Ukrainian economy again, I don't know that they're going to want to veto Ukraine's foreign policy choices all that much. Um Especially over time. I mean, you know, it's if they see that their lives are much better as part of Ukraine, which I think they would if you actually did move forward on reintegration, um, you know, even Russia's Minsk wouldn't necessarily give Russia what it wants, which again, I think is part of the story of this tendency for Russia to underestimate um, the appeal of Ukraine and how Ukrainians feel about Ukraine, including the ones in the uh, territories. Oleg, as you said, I mean, Russia has made very clear for, for, for years that it doesn't want Ukraine to be part of NATO. But Ukraine joining NATO is some way off. I mean, it's very unlikely to happen anytime soon. The harder line that you describe where even a closer partnership with Western powers is unacceptable to, to, to Moscow, what does that look like? I think the, the goalposts that he moved, right, the no NATO enlargement to um, Russia's neighbors is a longstanding red line. The statements in Sochi in October that NATO infrastructure is a problem, NATO training is a problem, that's a new red line because all of these countries have varying degrees of cooperation. Russia is a member of NATO's Partnership for Peace, right? I mean, just like all of these countries are, it has formally the same relationship to NATO that they do. Um, kind of the, the indication that that's a red line. And also, there is no formal NATO infrastructure in Ukraine. There are NATO member states that have training centers and various sorts of engagement. So again, kind of blurring that, that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's formally NATO. It doesn't matter if there's any talk of membership. It's any kind of activity is now a red line. And you know, I think that, again, it's basically, we don't like what's going on, stop it, is is the message. And if the troop buildup is designed to sort of win concessions on uh, Minsk or win concessions on NATO, neither of which it appears likely that Putin is going to get, 
what does that then lead to? Certainly, some people in Washington uh, seem to be taking seriously, certainly the Ukrainians themselves are taking seriously, they've warned of what a large scale invasion. But how should we see the likelihood of Russian troops going beyond the areas held by separatists? I wouldn't exclude it. I mean, this this is the thing. Would the Russians prefer to attain their goals without using military force or more military force? Absolutely. Are they willing to use military force? Well, they've proven that they're willing to use military force in Ukraine before, so I wouldn't dismiss the possibility that they'll use it now. Russia has shown a comparatively low bar for the use of military force, uh, and not just in Ukraine. So it could happen. I agree with Olga. So the question is uh, whether Putin is really willing to go to war to get concessions uh, from both the West and Ukraine. So perhaps he's just... Uh, waiting to be offered negotiations and is not uh, even thinking about war. Uh, perhaps he is ready for war but wants negotiations. But perhaps he wants war first and then negotiations on, on better terms. We don't know. Uh, the question is also uh, what kind of war he wants and what kind of war Russia is ready for. So if Russia attacks Ukraine, uh, I think that the reaction of the West uh, could be harsh and the price of this war for Russia could be very high. But I agree with Olga that in 2014 and in 2015, uh, we saw that Russia using its uh, uh, military in a limited way achieved what it wanted, uh, peace agreements with Ukraine on favorable terms for Russia. Perhaps Russia is ready for a limited military operation that will improve negotiating positions for Russia and for separatists. And what would a limited military operation actually look like? So limited operation means that a limited offensive in Donbas and Russia will not uh, participate in this military offensive openly. But everything uh, will be done by separatists which have enough forces and uh, which have enough heavy weapons. And uh, we can imagine that they can try to change the current contact line and uh, to get more territories in Donbass. Olya, let's say you, ha- you had an offensive, whether it was separatists with further reinforcements from the Russians, let's say they even moved down to Mariupol, which is further south, and captured more territory and then sued for, what, a sort of Minsk plus, even greater greater concessions. Are they not going to run into exactly the same problem? They're not going to change the politics in Kiev. In fact, they would arguably make it even more resistant to implementing anything that might be part of a new agreement. So again, I think this is the Russian underestimation of the Ukrainians. They don't think the Ukrainians will fight very hard. They think they can take territory very easily, and the Ukrainians will beg them to stop very, very quickly and be willing to make all sorts of concessions as a result, which will either um, force the Zelensky government from power and then somehow a more favorable to Russia government will be elected, you know, or Zelensky will make these concessions and stay in. So that that's kind of the, the logic that the Russians are following. I don't think that's how this actually goes, right? The way it actually goes is that, yes, they inflict a lot of pain on Ukraine, but the Ukrainians inflict a lot of pain on the Russians. Uh, the Ukrainians 
certainly get moral and verbal support from Western states, whether the military assistance they get also helps them slow down um, the Russian offensive depends in part on whether the Western states give them things that they could actually use. There's always been a bit of a disconnect between the shiny objects that get delivered and the actual needs of the soldiers on the ground. But, you know, let's say they actually get the radios that they need. You know, if there actually is a real Russian offensive, the Ukrainians could probably also use some air defenses that um, they don't really have uh, at present. But also the question of how much time you get have to deliver things, train people up on them, et cetera, comes in. But in any case, they, they, slowed, they slowed down the Russians. Western states also, they respond, right? Ideally, they threaten these responses in advance and deter, but if they don't, they still respond. So more sanctions, more isolation, and you can't exclude the risk of um, some military action by some NATO member states, right? The alliance has no commitment to Ukraine as a whole, but a lot of countries have been making a lot of statements of support. And some countries, particularly Poland and the Baltic states, really do see this, you know, what ha- Ukraine today, potentially us tomorrow. So they might face a certain... Um, they might feel they face a certain imperative to get involved militarily themselves. And once they do that, if anything happens to them, this isn't Turkey uh, shooting down a Russian plane, right? These are NATO member state forces in a fight, which NATO at least rhetorically supports um, getting hurt by Russians. Uh, you can see how this spirals quickly. Oleg, presumably there will be quite high costs for Putin in Moscow itself, in Russia itself, for doing this. How would Russians view uh, another offensive in Ukraine? Is that likely to build support for Putin or would it cost him support? I think that Russian audience is completely unprepared for any war. And uh, any war needs uh, a justification for, for Russian society. And so far, we don't see any such preparations. And... Uh, uh, I think that no war can be justified by NATO, NATO exercise, Ukrainian troop movements, uh, or Ukraine's uh, failure to comply with the Minsk agreements, or if the West refuses to talk about NATO and post-Soviet countries. So these are not justification. So uh, I still believe that Putin is not thinking about the war now. Yeah, if, if I can just jump in on that. I, I guess I, I, as Zaleg knows, I slightly disagree on this point. Um, I think the Russian public was not prepared for the annexation of Crimea. Uh, Russian politicians were saying that there was absolutely no intention of doing any such thing um, right up until the point when they were enthusiastically voting for it. Um, the Russian public was not prepared for the Russian military to go into Syria. That was also a surprise. Um, and in terms of provocation, Look, there's constant fighting along the line of contact. Anything there could be pointed to and said the Ukrainians have attacked. Uh, I don't think you need that much to make the case if you make a decision to go in. I would say that in 2014, so Russia, Russian media and Russian officials promoted the spin that Ukraine uh, is in the situation of collapse. And Russia justified the Crimea that it was going to protect its own population. Of course, uh, there are a lot of uh, Russian citizens now in Donbass, and Russia formally has such a, a justification. But 
We don't see any collapse of the state in Ukraine. Uh, we don't see any Ukrainian offensive. We don't see any preparations from Ukraine to seize Donbass or to attack separatists. To justify a big offensive against Ukraine, Russia should have real and explained justification. It doesn't have it now. But to justify a small offensive or limited operation, of course, Russia should have only a provocation. Olya, you talked a little bit about how uh, some uh, Western governments might respond were Moscow to uh, launch offensive in Ukraine. But obviously, I, the ideal would be for Western governments to do everything they can to deter that from taking place. So if you're sitting now in Washington, Brussels, another European capital, uh, you've got a number of tools that potentially you could use to, to do this. There's obviously sanctions and the threat of sanctions. There's the talking to Putin, which is obviously something that he seems to want, particularly with the US, with Biden. You've got threats of additional uh, ramping up military support for Ukraine. I mean, it, w what do you think now Western capital is looking at this and obviously wanting to deter further sort of Russian involvement in Ukraine? What do you think the best course of action for them would be now? So I think they need to sort out what it is they are willing to do both collectively and individually, recognizing that um, different states have different thresholds for what they're willing to do, uh, and communicate that to Russia, recognizing that there is a risk it will not be enough to deter. I do think the worst possible outcome is if the actual Western response is something that would have deterred Russia had it been aware that was what was coming potentially even sanctions that are heavier than they expect on the, uh, you know, something that actually does uh, really badly hit the banks and the oil and um, oil companies and so forth. I mean, I don't know. I have my doubts that that is what would deter because I think the Russians have been planning to deal with heavier sanctions for a long time. But I think it is really very crucial to communicate exactly what that package is and what could happen and what the real risks are rather than trying to be ambiguous about it and hope the Russians freak out at the possible escalation. Because the Russians, at least from everything I've seen, appear to be more willing to escalate. And they are trying to compel, really, Western countries and Ukraine with their threat of escalation. You find the the sort of strategic ambiguity, uh, sort of expressing a lot of support for Ukraine, but but not being clear about what actually you'd be prepared to do, were Russia to move in or, or or step up its military activities. You find that strategic ambiguity in the current situation more dangerous than actually just trying to work out a, a united position among NATO powers, signalling that clearly maybe behind closed doors to Putin and saying, you do this, this is what's coming. That you think is a less dangerous option than, than the ambiguity. So Russia can play with strategic ambiguity because we know that Russia is willing to escalate and we have real concerns that it's going to escalate quite a bit. Western states have less capacity to do that because everybody knows that they really don't want to do very much. So strategic ambiguity just doesn't work for them as well. Strategic ambiguity works when the other party genuinely believes that the high end of the threat is credible. As of now, I don't think the Russians believe that of the West. And I think, again, the problem is that the actual Western response might be more than Russia expects, not less. Some people have sort of drawn the parallel to uh, Georgia in 2008, where uh, 
Georgian president at the time, uh, Saakashvili, assumed that he had more Western backing than he did, was sort of provocative and, and the Russians rolled into South Ossetia and, uh, and Abkhazia. Do you see that as a sort of dilemma that Western governments have to manage, that on the one hand, they've got to throw their support behind Zelensky, but on the other hand, make sure that he doesn't do anything that goes a step too far and, and provokes Putin? I think um, this was a concern some months ago. I'm much less worried about it now. I think the Ukrainians read the Western statements uh, about the same way the Russians do. And I think they recognize that they're not going to get um, much from the United States, certainly, possibly more from Poland, the Baltic countries. Uh, but I think they, they understand the real limits uh, of uh, of Western support. Um, they also understand what would happen if they undertook any kind of military offensive on their own. Um, so I think this is not this is not Georgia in two thousand eight. I mean, do you think, broadly speaking, the Biden administration very focused at the moment on on containing China? seems wants to keep the relationship with Russia fairly quiet. On the other hand, Putin uh, seems to have some respect for, for Biden. The last meeting went fairly well. There's supposedly another meeting coming up with, or at least the Russians have said there's a meeting coming up with, with Biden. I mean, is that something, should sort of bigger discussions about NATO, should those sort of things be on the table at meetings like that? Look, I think dialogue is crucial for a number of reasons. One is actually saying the words is better than trying to send signals and hope that they're going to be understood as you move ships around the Black Sea or forces back and forth along the Ukrainian border. Um, actual conversations are good. The Russians indeed think the Americans control Ukraine. Um, the Americans do not control Ukraine. But insofar as the Americans are who they want to negotiate with, again, having these conversations would be valuable. I think returning also to a U.S. Uh, special envoy role would be valuable. In the grand scheme of things, you cannot separate out Ukraine from a broader conversation about European security. And while I don't think NATO is going to make commitments to change everything about itself and say that the door is closed to certain countries, having conversations about just what the security order looks like, and also what kinds of troop limits you might have, uh, force limitations, for instance, in the Black and Baltic Sea regions, which is where we've had a lot of the incidents and a lot of the concerns. I think that that is also crucial. It has to move in lockstep with a conversation about the future of Ukraine. Basically, you can't have one move forward without the other moving forward. Uh, they are incredibly interdependent, both because the one causes the other, and because you you know you can't solve you can't solve one without the other. Olya, Oleg, thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely, thanks Richard. Thank you Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work including on Ukraine on our website crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at crisisgroup. Thanks very much to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy and Finn Johnson. And thanks, of course, to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment. If you like the show, give us a positive rating or review. And I hope you'll all join us again next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.